Dystoplicant of the World. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The sunrise of August 17th, 2001 is where today's story will begin. Clumsily emerging from its slumber as its nocturnals plopped into it, Bromelby Washington was enthusiastically preparing for the 2001-2002 school and academic years. It had seen such a steady rise in its population that there were talks of it becoming an independent city and county akin to San Francisco, California. Bromelby was known for being a world center for education, academia, and the arts, making for an intellectual oasis that's been untidied, scarred, calloused, and defaced all over. The city would see three arrive for the first time and a fourth return after so long, a group looking to experience normal life again after years in the spotlight. Bo Jr., Winston, and Ursella were the new arrivals, and Floor was the one returning sharing an eagerness to build lives independent of the reality show turned documentary they starred in. They could taste the decadent alcohol and scrumptious food they knew Bromelby University provided in abundance. On a serious note, the majors Bo, Floor, Winston, and Ursella declared were economics, fashion design, pre-law, and pre-medicine respectively. Driving toward Bromelby's scholastic core, they were impressed with the amount of inspiration it took from the former Habsburgo Bromel College. Bo uncomfortably watched over Winston's fidgety driving as Florin Ursella held onto the GS cargo van's roof grab handles for dear life and hoped that nothing in the four luggages break. Students lined up at Bromelby University's frontmost quad where they signed in for its 2001 new student orientation. Some were freshmen and others had transferred out of community colleges and other schools, but all wasted little time introducing themselves. And Roth Sanchez, Tiffany Barajas, Giovanni Villalobos, and Camille Gomez were at the center of that excited frenzy to introduce. Seeing smiles everywhere, those four felt their souls self-embrace as if the shower spraying them was made of a ballyhoo they'll never truly taste, insulting their intelligences with a fame they knew was counterfeit. The kind words caressing them could never compensate for the ires beating within their souls. Ruff was a handsome, well-groomed, aspiring accountant, whereas the equally pretty Tiffany wanted to professionalize her dancing and modeling. Giovanni intended to realize his dreams of being a lawyer and politician while Camille wished to be an obstetrician and used that to achieve goals that have dogged her mind for a lifetime. But all four vowed to let the stinging hate potent bitterness and growing ire in them fuel their trip to success. Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, Camille, and the other new students caught the van, turning to a stop on a parking space directly in front of the sign-in station. The orientation buzz halted at the clumsily unison stepping out of Bo, Floor, Winston, and Ursella, 
blaring a shouting fanfare that the inescapability of their fame numbs them into accepting. Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, and Camille couldn't believe that they were seeing the stars of Pluralistopia in the flesh. They thought that a moment like this would never come, but were more than thankful that it did. And now, it was time for them to find out how much of a match their popularity was against that of the cast members. The adulation centering on them moved to where Bo and his friends were easier than a camera's move from one place to another. Roth cantankerously clenched his teeth at how quick the other students were to leave him and his friends in the cold like last year's fad. Tiffany held her round-framed glasses with her right thumb and middle finger, shivering her saddened plea for the pluralistopia buzz to go away. Giovanni was made physically ill by how Winston's blushy grin told the other students to love him over and over again. Camille's crossed arms, amused posture, and shaky tapping of her left foot hid the fact that she was in a world of her own. What went on in that mind of hers begged to be let out by punching and kicking her face like it was a bedroom door. Told by Bo to join the party and not be strangers, she and her friends vanquished their hard feelings as fast as a forced gulp of water joining everybody else with genuine-looking glees. A student representative called for all to come as there was an orientation to do, bringing excitement to most, but spite to Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, and Camille. Yet unbeknown to anyone involved, there were onlookers sprinkled all over campus, pretending to mind their own matters while calling the same overlong phone number. During the walk to the dorms, a student asked the ex-cast members how good or bad life's been to them since Pluralistopia. Bo said that he's kept himself busy by tutoring children and giving talks and interviews about his experience doing the documentary. Camille could see that on the website he made to promote his tutoring business, opinion articles, and daily diary, milking his mass fame to powdery air. That made it clear to her that Bo's talk about wanting to distance himself from his celebrity status was just that. Camille so, so didn't want to hear him go on and on about the struggles of being famous or how difficult it was to walk down the street without someone asking you for a picture or autograph. Flor spent her time after Pluralistopia taking night and weekend classes in dance, fashion, cooking and painting at Sajon Lament College. Giovanni saw her post about the four subjects on her Pricep account, having recently created one himself in hopes of being the then novel platform's definition of famous. He thought it was unfair how Floor could get lots of views with little effort while he had to work like hell to get a tiny fraction of them. Days after Pluralistopia premiered, Winston maintained a low profile by focusing on the hobbies he came across during production. His intent on sharing his interests with other people made living in private not a complete bore or the death of his ability to socialize. 
Tiffany watched the home videos Winston published on his Pricep account, festering her anger over how he had all the time in the world to do what he loved while she was forced to work full-time for peanuts and make do with the few hours of rest given to her weekly. She thought it was a miracle that she graduated high school, successfully transferred out of community college and enrolled into her dream university. Her work schedule during that time had the tendency to float like a boat in stormy waters, giving her early shifts one week, later ones the next, and vice versa. That said, Tiffany felt blessed that she and her friends have finally turned onto the road to making their dreams come true. Once Pluralistopia was out on tape and disc, Ursella made good on what she set out to do during the documentary by becoming her class's president, the head of her high school student council, and its valedictorian. Her graduation speech made everyone know that she'll continue her journey into university and the world of work, adding that it was her destiny and that of the earth to improve today so that tomorrow will be better. Roth read teen articles about this brainiac in Sajon Lament who graduated at the top of her class despite having to repeat senior year. He didn't realize that Ursella was that genius they were talking about as she wasn't identified by name for legal reasons. Roth was a valedictorian himself at his high school and graduated a year early, but no magazine that was in ever discussed that accomplishment and he bitterly knew precisely why. The Orientees were led into Fairfax Hall, a newly built three-floor dorm building where all freshmen and new students were to stay in. The room assignments were listed on the bulletin board in the lounge, determined by gender, personality, and major. For all the efforts student affairs made to create the most harmonious pairings possible, their final product wound up being far, far from perfect and rushed by an unrealistic deadline. Bo and Roth were assigned to one room. Flor and Tiffany had another to each other. Winston and Giovanni became roommates in a third, and Ursella and Camille had a fourth that was theirs to share. The Orienters gave their Orientees time to unpack, settle in, and get to know their roomies and each other, but told them to report to the center quad at noon for lunch and the kickoff to yet another school year. Camille unpacked her clothes, makeup, and toiletries, then took a metal box out and hid it under her bed with the care she'd give to a thin crystal one. Her intrigue spiked when Ursella put a bromelian flag up on the wall, made sure it wasn't drooping at all from the middle, and kept adjusting it until it was flawlessly flat. If Camille was correct, she recalled her roomie discussing how her time in the United States brought her a newfound resentment for her country of birth. For her, it was odd to see Ursella still consider herself a bromelian even after what she said in the documentary. Camille was one of that million plus who watched 
Pluralistopia when it premiered in theaters on the midnight of June 17th, 2000. The attention she paid to the film never wavered, allowing her to vividly recall every visual shown and word said, but Camille kept that intrigue to herself for reasons only she and students like her could anticipate. Giovanni napped like a cat atop his loft bed, sat up to stretch his body loose, and caught Winston grabbing his forehead in brooding pain. He wondered what got his roommate in such a hurt, but one thought back to the documentary provided him that needed answer. Giovanni asked Winston if he was thinking about that Barbara chick again, then pressed him to erase her from his memory as she can't hurt him anymore. Simultaneously, Ursella was asked by Camille if there were times where Jasper comes to mind, urging her to wash her hands of that jerk, especially after he got that sweetheart deal. Winston wanted to believe that Barbara was out of his life for good, but that stare he saw her give to the TV still haunted him to that day, and to top it all off, she was released on parole after serving three years of a sentence that was two and a half times as long, which wouldn't have been so devastating if it weren't for her posts on Pricep. Early on April 21st, Barbara said hello, introduced herself to everyone on the platform, and followed that greeting with a grainy video of a woman being beheaded somewhere in the Middle East for blasphemy. She commented that may this demise be a warning of what's to come for menage blasphemes like Winston, stating that she never forgot about his betrayal and will pursue him like a deer at the hunting grounds. Twelve minutes later, Barbara posted photos of hunting rifles, ammo, and survival knives on her bed, holding a machete in her left hand. She told Winston, Bo, Floor and Ursella to mark her words that she and Day will meet again soon, advising them to count their days because they and anyone else who gets in her way will have theirs numbered. After posting all that, Barbara hastily packed her stuff, made the arrangements necessary to make herself disappear, and listened with glee at news of police raiding her apartment only to find it completely empty. Winston took pictures of the threatening material before her account was taken down, intending to report it to BS2 and the FBI. Winston snapped out of his brooding, told Giovanni he was right, and said that thinking about Barbara will do more to hurt than help. Up to her chin in job applications, Tiffany rushed to finish them in order to make certain that she'll secure work in short order. She was interrupted by Floor playing a song about how an octopus in the deep blue sea was a friend to all, arousing amusement first and curiosity second. Tiffany asked her roomie why a girl her age was still listening to kitty tunes, saying that it bordered on pitiful with a bully's laugh. Floor called the music not an attempt to let out that kindergartner still in her, but a potent salve from a past of anger sadness, hate, and pain, adding that only a native Brumelian could understand. 
Tiffany funneled the scathing offense she took to that response into a say that her family was from Bromelia and fled that nation right after Gregorio Jr. took power. She arrived in the United States when she was two and her love for America didn't reduce the number of questions she had about what life was like back where she was born. Before being asked, Tiffany said she hailed from North Brumel Beach, which bordered Las Grandes Cascadas from the La Costa del Norte side. She had few memories of her time in Brumelia, and even those were vague at best. But there was one that she remembered every detail of, and it was a journey where every emotion was felt. Tiffany believed that it was better she not talk about that race in detail, as doing so risked resurfacing feelings no toddler should ever feel. Bo observed Roth staring into a plastic pumpkin like it was a baby he swore to protect with all his might. This made him look at the onyx necklace around his neck, a gift handed down to him from his mother Amy. Bo told his roomie if he didn't mind giving him some insight on the pumpkin he has in his arms and why he's holding it like an infant. Roth didn't appreciate his roommate prying into his inner mind, but was willing to tell a little if he enlightened him a tad on the necklace, saying that it'd be fair if they both confessed rather than one or the other. He and Bo gave their words that they'll tell no one of what's about to be said, knowing that dire consequences will result should what they say become public. Their hour in their dorm was spent explaining to one another the stories behind the pumpkin and necklace. When the announcement to report to the quad came, Bo and Roth exited the room like nothing happened and blended in with all the other orientees. The way those two turned their eyes at each other was indicative of a friendship being born, blessing one with a feeling that college was going to be pretty effing sweet, but spelled big trouble for the other as he now had a dark secret his new friend mustn't know about. Barbara got comfy in the basement bedroom of a warehouse superstore in an industrial part of Delgadopolis that's seen better days. There wasn't even a speck of a chance of her getting the ex-cast members herself as long as they're in America and she's on the run. Her best hope was to somehow have those four return to Bromelia, but even that was highly unlikely to ever happen. In the film, the ex-cast members didn't see themselves coming back to the mainland for the foreseeable future and would only consider doing so if its culture of dysfunction diminishes to a level safe enough for people like them. Barbara scoffed at how foolish and naive it was of Winston and his friends to think that they were finally safe now that they're in America. She said that while she may not be able to end them herself or in person, that didn't mean the servants Dean Jr. granted her couldn't either as they populated Bromelby Sajon Lament and other towns or cities with Bromelian American majorities in considerable numbers. Barbara removed the rope she had on to reveal a half-naked body 
that's 15 pounds heavier and covered in tattoos commemorating the yellow cross. She called her teenage self out for being a weak-minded wuss who couldn't take the heat that came with giving that black horneted horsen the demise he deserved. Barbara doubted if trashing that photo album of herself was the best decision, twinkling at her formerly golden hair, silky skin, and in vogue fashion sense. Even with her birth being under the Yellow Cross's shadow, her love of all things modish was still intense. Barbara saw to it that her magazine collection remained in her possession, becoming the main remnant of a posh life that's been reduced to a fantasy. The weights sitting on her shoulders were very heavy as she was one of the others whom Dean counted on to avenge the failures of groups like the Rusalka Six. Merely saying that Click's name sufficed in making Barbara's skin crawl her hope that their deaths were sluggish and pleaded for. She told the ex-cast members to enjoy their little orientation, for she has a surprise in store for them and her peers. Barbara had a handwritten sketch of the program's agenda on her lap, salivating at the retreat intended to be its main event. Her cell phone's contact list included two of Bermelby University's resident assistants, Demi and Cadence Brell, leading the orientees to a partyish open-air tent of seating white, purple, and black. Barbara had the staff and volunteers at Camp Moonset engage in her conference call, which she began by asking how things were going. The head counselor said that the plan was coming together real nice, declaring that August 19th will be the day they'll have their cake and eat it too. East of Bounder, Idaho, the camp was hidden by a forest so dense that nothing within its span could reach the 9-to-1 American town. Barbara praised the counselor for a job well done and wished she could see his excellent handiwork in person and action. She conceded that given her predicament, she'll have to settle for photos, videos, recordings, and writings. She's sure the camp's staff and their superior will find quite pleasurable. Barbara's tell for the counselor and those under him to keep up the hard work was shook by part of a security system's abrupt flashing on. She hung up rushed to the computers and saw BS2 and Delgadopolis police surround the superstore and prepare to breach its outermost layer. Barbara yelled for her subordinates to smoke those Democratic MFers all to F at all costs as they mustn't get their degenerate hands on her or severe repercussions will ensue. Her heart all beaten and bloodied, she tried calling Dean to demand that he explain how her unfindable hideout was found. After the superstore's outermost wall was blown open at a dozen spots, police followed BS2's ruthless lead inside, unleashing gunfire akin to provoked yellow jackets, shopping carts, product shelves, check stands, and even the items themselves fired upon them. Anything 
that could have something lethal attached to or into it opened fire, reminding some agents and officers of how far and low Gregorio Jr. was willing to go. The extreme swarm killed countless instantly, wounded many more, and prompted an urgent retreat. For Barbara, it was a pleasant surprise to watch the defensive dean set up for her hideout, do its job, and then some. But if her knowledge was accurate, she and her defenders were in for a prolonged battle, knowing that unlike Sinclair, Rounds the First was the kind of guy to see a conflict to its definitive end, whether in victory or defeat. Letting Dean's call be missed, Barbara watched her defenders and unmanned guns shoot down police and agents like scared deer attempting to fight back. As the battle trended more and more in her favor, Bromelby University's lunch and kickoff got underway. Two rotisserie chicken, tomato bisque, espresso, mashed potatoes, grilled asparagus, mini croissants, and tiramisu, Demi and Cadence shared in welcoming the new students to their second forever family, nudging to say a word more than the other. Orientees like Ursula and Camille found that amusing while most were indifferent to it, but all gave a round of applause that gazed at the chapter before them with a smile. Bo, Floor, Winston, and Ursella were on the front row while Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, and Camille sat towards the back. Cadence introduced the university president, followed Demi off the stage and stood behind the seating to join their fellow resident assistants. Barbara went from being pleased to high on a hubris that was stepped on by an urgent message from someone on the outside. That person was seeing Bromelian military vehicles speed toward the superstore by the caravan, upsetting her into calling Dean back with an intention to beg for his help and bleat how sorry she was for missing his call. Barbara's first attempt to get a hold of him went unanswered, and so did the second one, but the third time became the charm. Dean stopped her from saying anything as he was joining millions in listening to the battle live on Roddy Zorro, but with utter shock. He swore to Barbara that he was sure that her hideout would be impossible for anyone to find, annoying her into saying that it apparently had vulnerabilities that snuck past him. Dean told her not to worry because the superstore has so many layers that it'll take those Bolshevist cockroaches weeks to even reach the core she's hiding in. He reminded her of the power she had on her grasp now that she's working for him, advising her to use it as that will bring rounds and the other S's in his cabinet to heal. Dusk came almost eight hours later, and that was when the military finally destroyed the outermost layer and quickly did away with the next two. They halted their fire at the sight of Barbara's defenders, aiming at them 
as well as back at the customers and employees they've amassed and taken hostage when the battle began. She welcomed Rounds' troops to her superstore's pharmacy section and to the nine or so civilians that have already met their makers. Barbara recommended that they listen to her if they valued their lives and those of millions across Vermelia, adding that no one on the mainland will be untouched by her wrath. She scorned Sinclair and Round for taking six years out of her life and making them ones of ill health, humiliation, and anguish. Barbara called now the time for the Bermelian people to scream in pain like she did every single day of her present sentence. Her intention to speak more was paused by a call from Demi, which she ignored and resumed her speech with a hope that Round was listening in on it in real time as he'll be a critical piece in her game. Barbara hoped that Bromelia's commander-in-chief gave at least two turds about his people because God will have to help them if he doesn't. She advised Rounds to deviate from Roy Sr.'s mantra about never negotiating with the enemy as that'll be the only way he'll minimize the dying and maiming. Barbara said that there's no other way the curtain will fall on this awesome jamboree without mass fatalities and destruction. Rounds fought back to what Roy told him just before the Battle of Lobotown and it was in no uncertain terms stripping away his desire to work with her. He told Barbara that may Satan burn her the way he fried others of her kind, ruining the day she got paroled, and said that whoever okayed it must be fired and made unable to work in this town again. Rounds prevented her from explaining how her show will play out with what he just said, but with a voice message vowing to write the parole boards wrong. This made him out to be strong to many across the political spectrum, but caused Barbara's hostages to despair over their deaths now being sealed. She was livid, but unsurprised that Rounds would defy her, given how he fought alongside Roy at various points throughout the Civil War. After ordering her defenders to engage the enemy and kill their hostages, she called Demi back and asked her why she dialed at such a bad time. Cadence rudely butted in and screamed for a reason behind blowing the kickoff to nihility, shocking Barbara into responding with the loudest what she's ever yelled out. Demi explained that three minutes into the university president's speech, a rocket the size of a lunchbox struck the quad and halved the class of 2005. Barbara swore on Gregorio's grave that she had nothing to do with that rocket attack and wouldn't have authorized it without making sure those working for her were well away from the blast radius. Demi commanded her to find out who the hell pulled off this S-fest and get rid of them before they strike again. Barbara ordered her and Cadence to calm down, then assured them that she won't let a third, fourth, or even fifth 
party beat her to the ex-cast members. She hung up on a note that today's madness won't go unpunished and dispatched her minions to identify and annihilate those responsible. Shook up but not injured, Demi and Cadence attended a vigil for the dead in Bromelby University's basketball arena. The only lights inside the court were the candles raised in hand or on the circle stage, which symbolized the bursting of a bubble that had been popped more than once. In spite of the arena being above capacity, there were a number of students and faculty not present, such as Bo, Floor, Winston, Ursella, Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, and Camille, all of whom were at Jack Dryday Health's Bromelby campus. The emergency department was so full of severely injured patients that they called in physicians all over Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Oregon to keep up with the inconceivable inrush. Roth sat at the bedside of Bo, who had shards of the rocket shoot through the centers of both halves of his ribcage. As glad as he was to see his roommate in stable condition, he felt disgusted with himself for allowing his bitterness to take over. Roth gave God an upset damn for not giving him the insight to back out of what he got himself into until it was too late, tearing up and trembling at how pained and devastated both fall to sleep was. Clenching her fists, Camille timidly watched Ursella's coma tick on as her eyes leered at her roomie's revolting injuries. She saw the blast splat her roommate like water splashing up after someone's cannonball, finding it an utter miracle that it wasn't immediately fatal. Camille mouthed that made Ursella's suffering be profound and overlong, licking her lips at the bandages and casts covering her roomie's body. While still serious, Floor's condition was improving by the second as Tiffany tucked her in for the night and excused herself to get a root beer and bag of tortilla chips from the vending machines. Camille's walk down the hall from Ursella's room was self-embracive and a mixture of enfeebled concern and confident malice. Tiffany's turn away from the machines nearly caused her to bump into Giovanni, who told her that Winston was still in surgery and has no clue how he's been doing since his ambulatory arrival in critical condition. Camille sent her friends devilishly smiling texts that had them meet her in the parking garage next to the hospital. Tiffany and Giovanni complied gladly, whereas Roth did so with the disinclination of a prisoner being escorted from one place to another in shackles. Camille quietly yelled that she and her friends had done it and about how tonight was only the first of many sufferings planned for the ex-cast members. She was optimistic that Winston and Ursella will survive like Bo and Floor, underlining the importance of those four being alive so that their revenge can continue.
Camille couldn't fathom what she'd do or think if one more or all of the ex-cast members succumbed to their injuries. While the end goal was for Bo, Floor, Winston, and Ursula to die, she thought today was too soon for those deaths to happen. Camille wished to prolong and maximize the ex-cast members' agonies as much as possible and to the point where death would be begged for but wouldn't come until it's presented with four lifeless, soulless lives. Tiffany and Giovanni agreed with her when she told Bo, Floor, Winston, and Ursella to consider what blasted them today as the start of their comeuppance. Camille thanked her and her friends' master for serving them the opportunity to get even on a platter so silvery that it may as well be the metal in its rawest form. She said that neither she, Roth, Tiffany, nor Giovanni will forgive the ex-cast members for robbing them of their rightful fame. Camille never forgot the hysterical devastation that stormed through her body when she learned that the reality show she and her friends were supposed to star in was being cancelled to make way for the new pluralistopia. She, Roth, Tiffany and Giovanni had just been informed that they'd been chosen to star in Tell Neutral's Ambatranche, a reality show about the daily lives of four orphaned teenagers living independently. For Camille and her friends, the bad news robbed them of the big payoff they've waited years to receive after a life of struggle and turmoil. And now that their happy ending was made null and void, they honestly believed that revenge was their way to peace, leading to their alliance with a master who was as mysterious as they were powerful. Munching on a bologna sandwich in his golf cart, a security guard heard Camille call the rocket attack the beginning of an unholy terror. He smirked took a cunning bite and called Demi to tell her that he had a lead she'd like to have divulged on her. The guard held high-quality pictures of Roth, Tiffany, Giovanni, and Camille on his left hand like a deck of cards, getting told to report to the nearest hideout at once. Made comfortable by aspirin and a hot shower, Demi fell asleep with a single lie down and gradual closing of her blue eyes. Today and what tomorrow had brewing was of little bother to her supine smile, which leaned slightly to the right. However, Cadence's brain took three hours to finally sleep, and even then, she was merely numb to the sureness that she and Demi hadn't seen the last of the people who bombed the kickoff. Roth guiltily slept alone in his and Bo's dorm room, trapped between what he signed onto and his sincere change of heart. And as fate would have it, his and his friends' alliance with their master would cause such distress that it'll endanger the whole world. And that was the cancelled cast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share the show with everyone you know Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at 
rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.